She still left there and went along the sea of greed. He went up to a mountain and sat there. Great crowd came to him. He became the lame, the blind, the crippled, the milk, and many others, and led them at his feet. And he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw him. When they, when they saw the milk speaking, the crypt made well. The lane walking in the group. Wait, I forgot my word. I'm sorry, y'all. The lane walking in the blind scene. And they prayed the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him. He said, I had compacts for those people. They already been with three days and had nothing to eat. I do not want to I do not want to send them away with hunger, or they may collapse on the way. In the in disciples asked them, where could we, where could we get enough bread in the remote place to feed such a crowd? I mean, how many do you have? Jesus asked seven. They replied in a full small fish. He told the crowd, sit down on the ground, then look at several leaves on the fence. Maybe I get them thanks. He broke them and gave them to the disciples. And they jumped into the people. They all ate and were satisfied. After the disciples picked up seven fat fruit or broken pieces, they were left over. The number of those who ate were 4,000 men. Because women and children, after Jesus had set the crowd away, he got in a boat and went to the Virginia of Mary. Thank you, CJ. Good morning, everybody. Gina, you're going to single-handedly change this place. I love it. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember a service that's felt so wild up to this point in a while. This feels like uh, we've experienced like the... F <laughs> that's your middle name. That is the truth, Gina. And we love that about you. <laughs> well, thank you, CJ, for reading this passage. Um, as I check in on this one, when I, so when I saw that we're doing the feeding of the 4,000 next, my first thought was like, oh, God, is there possibly a passage that could be more well-known than this one in church circles? Right? I mean, you can't be in church more than 10 minutes and know this story, right? Uh, any of you who grew up in church, you know this story well. In fact, most of you could say we could pretty quickly together come up with kind of the basic moral premise of it, right? That God is a provider. We give to God what we have. God uses what we have, meets the needs of people, right? It kind of speaks for itself, right? So I found myself saying, man, like, how do, how do I, how do I, how do we come back to this in a way that's fresh, that's new? And that was really my prayer at the beginning of this. And so I want to share with you kind of how I got to a new place on this passage and I hope that it does for you as well. So during this past year, River City, we've, we've tried doing something different. We have built our Sunday sermons off of the lectionary and in typical kind of River City style, what, what what means something to somebody might mean nothing to somebody else. So first, like half of you, you hear the word lectionary, you know exactly what that means. The other half of you, like you have no idea still, even though we've been doing it all year, what that is. Right? So a lectionary is when they, uh, a group of folks long time ago put together 
different passages of scripture that go along with the seasons of the church calendar. All right, so the church calendar starts with Advent, the preparation of God coming in the flesh in Jesus, and continues with Christmas, the season of Christmas. We just came out of 40 days of Lent. We are now starting the season of Easter. And so um, different pa- the idea is that you get through the whole Bible, um, but you kind of track through the different seasons. And so we've been going through the book of Matthew, but we're not going through it chronologically. We're going through it in the different seasons of the church. All right, so I say all that because... Um, also, for some of you who grew up in church that didn't use church calendars, the church calendar, Easter for many of us was a one-time event in church, right? Um, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, which was last Sunday, that's a one-time event where we celebrate the risen resurrection of Jesus and you kind of move on to whatever is next after that. But in the church calendar, Easter is the second longest season in the whole church calendar, right? So you've got, in fact, about a quarter of the year is just about Lent and Easter. So Lent is, y'all know this, how many days and how many nights is, is Lent? Yeah, 40 days, 40 nights is Lent, right? So that's this joining in Jesus in the same way that he goes into the desert preparing for what God has called him to, and we prepare and reflect and think on Good Friday. So now we started the Eastertide season last Sunday, the Resurrection Sunday, and so so Easter season goes 50 days, right? So 50 days of the church calendar is dedicated to active reflection together on the meaning of the resurrected Jesus, on really reflecting together. What does that mean that Christ rose from the dead, invites us into resurrection power. So I bring all that up. I've been checking on that every, checking on that every once in a while throughout the series, but that really helped me with this passage because it, let, let's frame it like this. If you would say of all the stories that are available in the New Testament, if you were going to pick one to start the answer to this, what does it look like to live in resurrection power? If you're, if you're going to say to somebody, like th- this is the kind of two profiles I thought of. I thought if somebody was seeking Christianity, wanted to understand and said, okay, what does that all mean for y'all that Jesus is resurrected? What does that mean for y'all? If, if I was going to try to answer that, is this the story I would start with? Would you ever think to start with this account as kind of part one of trying to say, here is what life in the resurrection looks like with Jesus? Right? Or I thought of just a slightly different profile. You get somebody who's like new to the faith and they're on fire and intense and like really want to give themselves fully to God. And they say, show me somewhere, point me to somewhere in scripture that'll give me a sense of like, what does it look like to live as an on fire Christian with Jesus? Is this the passage you would think to start with that? It would not have been for me. It would not. This familiar story of Jesus feeding the 4,000 for Matthew, it's actually interesting. There's two accounts. If you go a chapter earlier, he feeds the 5,000. Now in chapter 14, uh, chapter 15, he feeds the 4,000. I would not have thought of this as the place I would start of saying, what is our design as resurrection people? How should we live as resurrection people? So that really changed that, the, the way I came to this passage. It gave me a new sense of curiosity, a new sense of interest, a new sense of intensity to come at that passage. So I'm going to invite you to kind of, even if this story feels super familiar to you, I'm going to invite you to kind of come to that, asking this question, how, how might this passage be an answer to us of how we live as resurrection people. Doesn't that feel like it kind of kind of engages us in a different kind of way? So uh, it's really, it went from being this like passage I felt was like so familiar to one that has like really grabbed hold of me of a new way and I'm really glad for it. I went from thinking it's so familiar to like having too many points to do in a sermon. So I'm not gonna do most of them. In fact, I really kind of mostly wanna focus on one and then we'll get just kind of briefly to a second one as we kind of finish up. But, and if you bring the, the passage back up, if you don't mind, um, Sergio, so when you watch this story unfold, so Jesus is with the disciples on a mountainside. It says great crowds come to him. And this is, of course, Matthew is paying very close attention to those who are most drawn to this Jesus. 
It's the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others. The one common thread through all of them is it's people who are suffering. Right? People who are suffering tremendously. So the people are amazed at Jesus. They're amazed at the way that people are being healed, the mute are speaking, the crippled are being milled well, lame are walking, the blind are seeing. So there's this kind of sense of movement, of spiritual excitement. And then now Matthew's going to turn the camera, and he, of course, would have been one of the 12 apostles that's there being formed by Jesus, being trained by Jesus. And uh, Matthew wants us to see within this group of 12 kind of how they're experiencing this. In in verse 32, um, this is where this really important word, a word that's not unfamiliar, a word that you probably could even come up with a working definition on your own. It's, It's a word we use. But here's where Matthew really zones in. Verse 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have, what's the word Jesus says? I have compassion for them. I have compassion for them. When Matthew and the disciples go back and think about this story and end up passing it on orally and eventually becoming written, when they think about this encounter, it starts with Jesus saying, I have compassion on them. This is one of the things that most jumped out. And I want to stay with this word for a minute uh, because, again, I, I, I don't think that's a word that's unfamiliar, right? In fact, I think if we went around and said, what is compassion? We probably would have a semi, somewhat similar kind of definition, right? I mean, you kind of, on your own, can get to the idea that compassion is about being empathetic with people, right? Seeing people suffering, seeing people struggle, somehow kind of joining in them in that, right? I mean, I think we could get to a lot of what compassion is. We can certainly recognize compassion is not, un- not unique to the Christian vocabulary, um, many faiths center this idea of being compassionate. So in a lot of ways, it's not unique to Christianity. And yet what we see here, and if we're asking this bigger question of how does this passage teach about the resurrection design, I want us to kind of ask this question, what actually is it that's unique about the word compassion from a Christian lens? All right, not to say it's not a valuable word everywhere, but actually there is something pretty distinct about how the Bible talks about compassion, how it this story, one of the reasons why I think it's the first one after Resurrection Sunday, um, um, what it's inviting us to consider. That's, that's what I'd like to us to really consider. Like, what is unique about the way that the Bible talks about compassion? And I actually think this passage is as good as anywhere to do it. So uh, if, if you kind of look back at this text, here, here's the first thing that jumps out when we look at this text. There's these crowds, these people who are suffering. Jesus is obviously forming the disciples to be able to kind of carry out the same type of mission after he's gone. Here's what's interesting. Here's what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say to the disciples, here's a group of people suffering. You all should be compassionate towards them. No, see, he doesn't actually say that at all. Now, does that mean he doesn't want them to be compassionate? Of course, that's not what it means. This is the ultimate goal, is that they too would embody this. They too would have compassion instilled deep into who they are. But that's not actually where it starts. Jesus doesn't start by saying, hey, y'all, there's people suffering. You should have compassion. What is it that Jesus says when he sees these crowds and when the disciples interact? He says, I have compassion on them. I have compassion on them. Which is not a small thing. When we think about compassion from a biblical perspective, the the idea, the formational idea of who we're becoming in this is to start, certainly we're, we're supposed to embody eventually too, but the starting point of compassion is actually how we see God and how we see how God sees people. Jesus says to them, I have compassion, and that's going to be the starting point for everything that happens in the rest of this encounter. All right, so from there, let, let's, uh, again, we, how we would think of compassion, being kind, joining people, I think we, we would all have kind of a sense of that. Maybe here's a different way to bring uh, 
the unique Christian perspective to this word, the, the English word compassion, it's two words, right? It's two words joined together, come and passion, or cone and passion, right? In, in almost all Latin languages, C-O-N or C-O-M means the same thing. Y'all know, what, is, what does C-O-N mean in Spanish? With, right? It's in all Latin languages is what it means. So it's to be joined with passion. And passion is an interesting word because passion in its original word actually means suffering. So a lot of us, when we talk about we're passionate about something, we don't actually really understand what we're trying to describe, right? To be passionate about something is to care about something so deeply you're willing to suffer. You're, you're willing to join in the suffering of the world. Uh, it's actually, that's why we call the um, Good Friday sequence the passion of Christ. It's described in the, suffer, the suffering. So if you took just the two joining of the words um, and use it from a Christian perspective, compassion is to be with suffering of God. Compassion is to be joined to the suffering of God. And this is not to glamorize suffering in any kind of way. It's not to say suffering is a good thing or that we should hope for it. Suffering is almost a terrible thing. But at its core meaning, when the Bible's talking about compassion, it's talking about suffering with God, to suffer with God, which then has certainly a material expression to it. There always will be. But there's also just this spiritual component, which I think makes compassion really unique to become somebody who's compassionate from a biblical perspective would be to become somebody who is increasingly being joined to the heart of God. To be somebody who's compassionate is first to start seeing the world as God sees it, to be seeing what people are going through as God sees it, and then from there, like, this is like, this is, it's, it's so deep because uh, we, we did this passage a few weeks ago when we had baptism together. In Romans 6, the Apostle Paul says, when describing baptism, the Apostle Paul says, some of what's so cool about baptism is we're united with Christ, right? We're united with Christ in his life, but we're also united with Christ in his death. We're united with Christ in his suffering. Benjamin did this great Good Friday sermon here where we talked about when we're in suffering, the, the Bible says God, Emmanuel, is with us in our suffering. And so compassion is this actually deeply spiritual word that's not less than material. It absolutely is material too. But it describes this notion of first seeing that God is with those who are suffering and then somehow being invited by God, with God, in the suffering of other people. You see how this like really takes us into a deep place? It's beautiful. It's transformational. It requires action, but it's something so much more than just action. It's kind of an embodied way of living where you see who God is, how God's working, how we join. And I'm, I'm saying a little bit more about that, but what's, what's interesting about this passage, um, th- th- this is one of those, every once in a while things line up so much with like my own life. This past week has been kind of a wild week for me. I've been, when I think of the crowds who are with Jesus here, those who are suffering, I've been just, re- not my own self-suffering, but I've been up real close to some people suffering in like some profound ways this week. And it's been disorienting um, and um, stretching and has taken me past my own limits. And um, I found myself feeling kind of embarrassed that I didn't have more stamina for it. I found myself being embarrassed a little bit that I didn't have more ability to move in the way I wanted to. So I was not thinking about this the first half of the week. I wasn't even thinking about this passage yet. But as I started getting into this passage, it was uh, strangely comforting to see what happened to the disciples. (laughs) They see God showing God's compassion towards people who are suffering. But when you watch this, what you see, and I think in general this is what happens, when you start to get closer to suffering, when you start to get closer to how God is with people who are suffering, 
usually what happens first is not an immediate sense of compassion and joy. Usually what happens first is your own sense of limitation gets exposed. Right? At, the, at the worst level, when you get close to suffering, you see that you're just kind of selfish and indifferent and don't care. That's kind of the worst versions of it. Um, but even the better versions of it, you see that you're uh, insecure, that you're uh, anxious. It often brings out a lot of your... I, I found myself so anxious this week. I didn't know what to do. And when I don't know what to do, I get anxious. When I don't know how to really be with somebody in a way, I get anxious. Um, it brings us to our own even deep senses of in- inadequacy. Right? Look, I mean, this story is so familiar, but like, listen to it through that lens of kind of limitations and inadequacy. Right? So Jesus said, I've got compassion for these people. Verse 33, the disciples answer, where could we ever get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Now, that's not an incorrect thing to say, right? I mean, it's not like the bread is everywhere and they're just unwilling to do it. I mean, it's a legit, like, they're feeling a lot of anxiety around their resources, right? They do not have the resources to respond to this. Um, but you see, I actually think, I think, uh, I think Matthew adds this just to get to like the degree of insecurity they're feeling. Um, Jesus, verse 34 says, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. This is in verse 34. And they say, and a few, look at the word they put before fish. They don't just say a few fish. What do they say? A few what? A few small fish. Right? They want Jesus to be real clear that they don't have much to work with in this moment. They don't have much to work with in this moment. And I think what they're doing shows us where, uh, where we will get stuck in the journey. Um, so again, I, th- I think probably most of us, if, if we're just being less, this isn't about being judgmental, just being honest. I think most of us, aren't even trying to be compassionate really at the end of the day. So like right off the bat, you're dealing with a lot of insecure, uh, of a lot of indifference and just, you know, most people are just trying to do their own thing, um, live their life, do their own thing. So when you start being willing to not only hold your own suffering, but you know, again, we, this was the feel of all day today. Benjamin put great words to this. When you try to be with other people in their own suffering and to hold it together, I think what we'll find is that we get taken to our limits really quick. Our anxieties come out. Our insecurities come out. Our, our, our deep sense of an even inadequacy comes out. And you just kind of find yourself saying, I can't, I can't, I can't. I don't have enough. I don't have enough. I, I, I don't know how to do this. And I'm not saying there's not a place for being considerate of those kinds of things. But I'm coming back to this question. Why is this the first passage in the lectionary post-resurrection Sunday? See, if it was just an ethical thing, like just be kind or be compassionate, I mean, that's not insignificant. We should be. But I think the Bible's inviting us into something deeper. Yes, we should be compassionate. And when you try to be, you get to the end of yourself really, really quickly. It's calling it limitations is the kindest way. Again, I think even coming up against your own selfishness, right, your own sense of self-absorption. My poor kids, they, I have been hammering them all week long about the dangers of a me-first way of life because I'm like so deep in this thing. <laughs> They're like looking at me like wide eyes by the time we got to yesterday. Like, are we, are we done with this like me-first kind of, uh, uh, but, but I, do, I, th- I think there's something wrapped up even in our, it, like our own collective salvation somehow is wrapped up in this word compassion. Like I think it's that big of a word because again, it's not less than the ethics, the behavior of moving towards people who are suffering, but it's so much more than that. It's about truly seeing God as a God who suffers with people, that the passion of God is to suffer with people. I mean, that's just a profound idea that God hates suffering and will 
cure it all someday, like God will remove every tear from every eye when God makes things right. But here and now, even as Benjamin said today, that we are saved from the power of death and yet there's a sting by the remnant of death here, that God is with us in the suffering and that we are called to see God and see each other in that suffering. And even as we do so, becoming embarrassingly aware of our own insufficiency in that becoming embarrassingly aware, at least I'm going to use that word, maybe that's not the right word, but it feels embarrassing when I come up against my own limitations, when I come up against my own inadequacies, when I come up like just the, I don't think of myself as an anxious person. It was just really interesting to see how anxious I was this week as I was up close to suffering. And then that takes us to where I think God is trying to take us. We need resurrection power. We need, right? Resurrection power doesn't actually mean anything if you don't see yourself needing that kind of power, right? It, uh, the transformation of God doesn't mean much if you don't see yourself as needing to be transformed. <laughs> so there's something kind of profoundly spiritual formative in this that when we start to try to see God and see people as God sees people and join in that suffering, that there's something actually really redemptive about coming up to your own limitations, right? The point of this is not to say, stupid disciples, why can't they ever show up right when it's time to show up? That's, the point of this is to say, Jesus is forming them. He's just forming them to carry this on after he's resurrected. And he's teaching them where it all starts. And where it all starts is not actually their own activity. Where it all starts is the compassion of God as seen in the person of Jesus. And that what they're tapping into is not their own creativity. They're not tapping into their own power. They're not tapping into their own conviction. What they're designed, resurrection designed to tap into is the compassion of God, which then brings them to their limitations and begins this kind of transformation process that's kind of got this very circular motion to it where experience limitation, come back to God, get sent out, experience limitation, come back to God, right? Um, and so, so I think that's all wrapped up in this word compassion. So I have been thinking so much about compassion this week and how it shows up in here in this passage and how it, I don't know, is it too much to say this? Is it possible that one of the primary fruits of resurrection power in a believer's life manifests in compassion? Is, is it possibly that's one of the primary fruits of the activity of the resurrected Christ in you is that we see God showing compassion and we're compelled to see and join in that? I don't know. I think that's what I'm walking away from this passage. One last thing on this, because, I mean, that would certainly be missing kind of one of the big the big thrust of where this passage goes. But, but let me frame it like this, this last little, that this last little bit. Um, the other, the, here's the other big thing that jumped out to me as I came to this in a fresh way, thinking this is the first lectionary passage post-Easter. I realized that the way I have talked about this passage, and honestly, the way I've heard pastors and theologians talk about this passage all my life is actually wrong. We all call, not maybe, maybe some don't, most of us call this passage Jesus feeding the 4,000. Or in the other one, we call this Jesus feeding the 5,000. That's how I've always heard of this passage, right? That's the miracle, is that Jesus feeds the 4,000. But when you actually read this account, does Jesus actually feed the 4,000? Who feeds the 4,000? The disciples feed the 4,000. So the miracle that happens is not that Jesus feeds the 4,000. The miracle is that Jesus positions and fashions and sets up the disciples to be able to carry out the mission of Jesus to feed the 4,000. Which this is, this is very linked to this notion of the compassion because, I, again, I'm not, 
I'm not trying to make it less than showing up for people. We do that as well, but it's it's so much bigger. I think compassion starts with this seeing who God is and seeing who God is in the world. But then this is, it's, it's it really doesn't even make sense to me, but it's clearly how the Bible does it. Um, God does not directly, almost hardly ever, it's hardly ever the case in the Bible that when somebody's suffering, there's this like spiritual manifestation of God that comes to the person in suffering and says, here am I. Right? Now, of course, God is with people in suffering, but how is it that God shows God's self with people who are suffering? God sends people to be with people. Right? The way we most tend to know of God's presence when we're in the midst of suffering is when somebody else is with us in that suffering. Right? There's this just kind of wild exchange here where Jesus is inviting them into the compassion of God and then inviting them into bringing, right, this is where the familiar parts of this passage, they bring the little bit they have, and this is true, right? They bring the little bit they have, and God breathes on it, puts life into it, right? I mean, there, there is a whole sermon in there, right? The little bit that you have, when God, when God infuses it with power, it can go a lot farther, right? That is its own whole great sermon, too. But in, in, in terms of linking it to compassion today, this is what just really jumps out, is that this is, this is the design of how God's love is made manifest in concrete ways to people. Bottom line, this is how the resurrected Christ does it, right? The resurrected Christ wants people to feel loved, but God does that by sending us. The resurrected God does and is with people in the midst of suffering, but the way the resurrected Christ does that is by sending us. And for as imperfect as we are, and we see it with the disciples in both passages, they get like a lit. It's interesting to go back and forth between 14 and 15 and see which parts of the disciples still struggling with parts they get a little bit better in 14 after 15. But bottom line is this. They don't know how to do this. They don't know how to be with the people. They don't know how to be with Jesus in this. But God's forming them. God's preparing them. God's broadening them, deepening them, if you want to use the terminology, transforming them, right? And they will become people who can move with people who are suffering. They can become people who are able to embody the love of God in a way that's reflective of their own transformation process. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's not less than showing up for people, but even in showing up for people, it, it just, we hit our limits so fast if it's not infused, <laughs> embedded in the compassion of God, actually. The spiritual renewing power of God. This is God's work, ultimately, but God's work doesn't happen outside of us. So we are part of it. In fact, actually, let, I mean, this, this, uh, to me, this is true. We're, we're really done. In fact, I'm like, sorry, I'm like all over the place, but let's stand up for this because I, I really, I hope you'll like really feel this. I'm going to go right into prayer from this. But yeah, go ahead and say, yeah, Sergio, thanks. L- leave this up. How Jesus does this is like, I don't know how I've never noticed this before. So verse 34, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked, seven, they replied, a few small fish. So Jesus tells the crowd to sit on the ground. Now, verse 36. Yeah, if you can go over to verse 36. Look what Jesus does. Now, remember, it's not, Jesus isn't actually going to feed the crowds. He's going to teach the disciples how to be manifestations of the love of God in concrete ways for people. Then Jesus took the seven loaves and the fish. He gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to the disciples. Now, that's, very dis- that's a very distinct description of what Jesus does with this bread and it's not a cup, it's fish. But what does it sound a whole lot like? It sounds a whole lot like how all four disciples describe this, the communion scene with Jesus, where Jesus takes bread and a cup, and Jesus breaks that bread and gives thanks. And then he hands it to the disciples and says, receive this and remember me. 
So when we see this kind of profound passage of the compassion of God, which is what this is all about, the compassion of God, but when we see the compassion of God expressed, Jesus basically does communion with him. Jesus takes the little bit. Now, now let's, let's picture us as the disciples. When we bring, even in our limitations, even when our own anxieties and insecurities are fully laid bare in the process, when we take the whole of who we are, good and bad, ready and not, able and totally not, and bring it to God, God takes what we have, breaks it, prays over it, says thanks, and hands it back and says, now go. Now go as expressions of me. So I want you to just close your eyes right now. I want you to just sit in that with me. I'm just praying, begging even, that the Spirit of God will will kind of illuminate something in you, um, will stir something in you, will help you see something, but not that we're praying right now, but I'm just kind of leading us as, as we kind of sit in this imagery. And so I'm asking God to just kind of collectively take us on this journey right now. So God, we are in this first Sunday of the Eastertide season, 50 days, where we're going to together reflect on what does it mean that we are the forgiven, saved, loved children of God who are different because of your resurrection. So now as we sit in this, mm, I want us to, I want us, let, let, let's sit on both sides of this thing. Let's, let's enter into this story and let it come alive in our hearts and minds. So God, we are listening to Matthew describe who it is that felt most drawn to you, most comfortable, most trusting of who you were. It was those who were suffering. As has been named all throughout this service today, so many are holding so much right now. And I invite you just to allow yourself to think about what it is you're holding right now. Let's not even think about how we're to show up for other people for a moment. Let's just, let's just allow ourselves to be present with the pain you carry. The hardship that would define this era of life right now. The loss that you're trying to make sense of. Maybe even hopelessness and despair. Hmm. As you allow yourself to feel that which you're carrying right now, is there a part of you, maybe a whole bunch of you that can trust that God is in that with you? Can you trust that you're welcome in that group that follows Jesus of Nazareth around, that follows God in the flesh, that takes comfort simply by being in his presence? Do you trust that when God sees you, God feels compassion? That God, at a visceral level, feels your suffering? This is first and foremost what Jesus wanted his disciples to know from that encounter. He felt it. The word compassion comes from like the deepest part of our guts, that in the deepest part of the bowels of God, God feels your suffering. Mm. 
can you let the Spirit tell you right now that the God of the universe sees you, understands what's happening, agonizes along with your suffering? Let's, let's, these are not different things. It's holistic, but in this first pass, we're looking at ourselves. Now let's turn it around and look at the world, those around us. When we think of being resurrection people, can we see that God wants us to see and feel the way God is with other people who are suffering? that the movement of God's heart is towards those whose backs are against the wall, who feels like they're at the very end of what they can handle and hold, towards those who are suffering. I think if we're honest, we'll come up with all the, we should be able to see all the ways or many of the ways that that scares us, that that takes us to the end of our own, right? You start saying things like, I'm already struggling. How can I help others? I only have this many resources. I've got a busy job. I don't have much time. I'm barely hanging on myself. Like there's very real things that come up. The disciples weren't wrong when they said there's not many resources. But it's almost like this is what we have to do first we have to like let all the reasons we think we can't live this kind of life come to the surface. And then in our fragileness, even in our fallenness, if I can say that, we bring that to God. And God says, bring all of who you are to me. Your fears, your doubts, your anxieties, your insecurities, your questions, your doubts, your limitations. But then bring, the, bring what else do you have. Bring you. Bring the heart you have for people. Bring the little bit of resources that you have. I will break it. I will breathe on it. I will infuse it with supernatural power. I will hand it back to you in the same way we receive the gift of communion. I will hand this back to you and I'll send you out to be with me and with my people. I mean, what, a, what, a, what an invitation the resurrected Christ gives us. This is so much more than something we're supposed to do. This is the heart of God we're invited into, the way of Christ that we're invited into. Oh God, we're going to sing back to you. We're going to listen for the ways you're talking to us and we're going to sing back to you. This has been a beautiful time together. I just so, so thinking about these days, the way that you do want to speak to us in the way that a loving mother and a loving father wants to speak to their children. You want to speak to your children. So this is a passage of scripture that has been captured in our Bibles forever, but there's something you want to say to each one of us. So as we sing right now, would we also listen? Listen for what it is you want us to hear. May we take it with us. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're able and want to stand for our closing benediction, if you're interested, maybe we can even 
hands outstretched to receive the word of God. Let us be a resurrection people. Let us learn always in new and deeper ways to receive what God is turning us into as resurrection people. Let us remember that compassion is a primary fruit of being a resurrection person. That though it will always call us to action, compassion first starts with an invitation from God to see as God sees, to feel as God feels. That is a big invitation to see as God sees, to feel as God feels, which in change, in turn, changes the way we see others. I think of the words of Father Greg Boyle, the founder of Homeboy Industries. He says that when you experience the compassion of God, you change. You start to stand in awe of what people carry rather than in judgment for how they carry it. Let us be a people who aren't just compassionate in action, but who are shaped and changed by the compassion of God. And all God's people said, amen. Love you all.